1984, young man Jerry Howell went missing after grabbing a ride with a friend to a dance party in Kansas City, Missouri. At 19 years old, Jerry had fallen into hard times, making poor decisions around drugs and alcohol and working as a male prostitute to pay for his lifestyle. Jerry had met his friend Bob through his father's shopfront at the Westport Flea Market and become friends with Bob. Bob was a little bit older than Jerry, and Bob was about 35 years old, and I'm not sure if I'd be comfortable with this friendship as Jerry's dad, but Jerry's 19, he can make his own decisions, right? So Bob's shop neighbor was Jerry's dad, but Bob often took in young men who were runaways or who were struggling with drugs and perhaps needed just a little bit more help. He was also fairly well known in his community, and in recent years had even helped to organize crime prevention activities in his neighborhood with the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention Association, even serving as the chairman in the early 1980s. He encouraged the neighborhood watch, and while quiet, no one really felt that he was anything more than completely harmless. However, Jerry Howell got into Bob's vehicle under the impression that he would be going to a dance party in the city, just after they stopped at Bob's house on Charlotte Street. Howell was never seen or heard from again. And while Bob looked suspicious to police and to Jerry's father, there wasn't much police could do other than watch and wait. And boy, did they wait for far too long. I'm your host, Catherine, and this is Murder in Mediumship. Just a reminder that the September Patreon-exclusive interview will be held on September 26th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This episode is going to be about the life and death of Jeffrey Epstein, and following the live recording of the episode, there will be time for Q&A. This is only available to those on the interrogate tier, and the recording will never be made available to the general public only held as a Patreon exclusive. I've been waiting a long time to do this interview, and I do plan on channeling at the end of the episode. You do not want to miss this one. I almost want to miss this one, but you don't want to miss this one. I'm excited for this. I'm also opening registration to my intuitive development course for another round. This one's going to be held during the week and during the daytime hours, so it'll be perfect for a stay-at-home mom or for anyone who works from home who can grab a break. Registration will be open on the 21st of September and class will begin October 19th. It will take place at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time every Wednesday for six weeks. Also coming in October will be the start of bi-weekly psychic medium circles via Patreon. More on that next week, though. Keep your spooky stories coming, my friends. I have received a good number of them, and I'm really excited to start including them in our episodes. You can send them to Katherine Galvin at katherineannintuitive.com. DM them to me directly at katherine.ann.intuitive on Instagram. Remember that I will never, ever, ever DM you for a reading, so don't give those fakes your hard-earned money. All right, so let's get back to it. What the hell happened to Jerry Howell? Jerry was reported missing by his family, but he wouldn't be the only one to go missing under Bob's watch. Bob, also known as Robert Berdella, was originally from Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. He was born to Robert Berdella Sr. and his wife, Mary Berdella. 
His family was such an average family, too. They attended church weekly, dad worked for Ford Motor Company, and mom was a stay-at-home mom. His younger brother, Daniel, was seven years younger than he was, and absolutely the more athletic one. By some accounts, the favorite of Bridella's father. Bridella was allegedly bullied as a kid, wearing incredibly thick glasses to compensate for his severe nearsightedness, beginning around the age of five. I gotta say, I had a lazy eye when I was four, and I wore some pretty gnarly, large, rainbow-rimmed glasses. (laughs) Atrocious. I can find a picture, I'll share it on Instagram, it's totally worth it. He was sort of, but I mean, I get it, He, he looked like a total nerd, and uh, I think he got made fun of for that. But he was sort of a loner throughout school, and at home, his father was allegedly very physically and emotionally abusive to both Robert and his brother. However, when Robert was 16, his dad passed away from a heart attack on Christmas Day, and he was only 39 years old. As if that's not difficult enough, losing your dad at such a young age, his mom remarried pretty quickly, which felt like an utter betrayal to young Verdella. And it was around this time Verdella realized that he was attracted to men, which in the 70s, I have to imagine, further isolated him when he was already feeling pretty lonely. In his teenage years, Berdella watched a movie that left a lasting impression on him. The movie, The Collector, was about a man who kidnapped a beautiful female art student to keep as a sex slave. This would influence Berdella in ways no one could have ever guessed that it would. And it also speculated, though, though I couldn't really find any information to substantiate it, but that he was sexually assaulted around age 16 by a fellow restaurant employee while he was working as a dishwasher. This is around the time that he would end up ultimately quitting going to church with his family. While being called difficult to teach by teachers throughout his academic career, he still graduated from high school with fantastic grades and a partial scholarship to the Kansas City Art Institute. I believe his graduation and his move away to college was kind of a bit of shock to some, though, as he had already run into trouble with law enforcement. While he was at the Art Institute, Berdella had begun to sell drugs to other students. He mistakenly sold amphetamines to an undercover police officer, and he was arrested. He was left off. He was let off fairly easily with a suspended sentence and served absolutely no time. He was only handed a five-year suspended sentence. Not too far down the road, though, he was arrested again, but this time for possession of marijuana and LSD. He spent five days in jail, but the charges were dropped for a lack of evidence. There are so many times that this person was put under the watch of law enforcement and could have been arrested and and received serious charges that could have taken him off of the streets and away from people, but it just never panned out, and that blows my mind. Bradella's time at the Kansas City Art Institute didn't last long either. He was doing really well as a chef, working in really well-known country clubs and establishments, and was even setting up trainings for aspiring chefs through the local chefs association. His flourishing career as a chef may have looked like the perfect reason to duck out of art school, but in reality, he was more or less forced to leave, though it was ultimately his own decision, kind of like a resign or will force you kind of thing. Bradella's art was slowly depreciating from really fantastic, intricate works of art two kind of like half-assed creepy performance pieces. He and one beheaded a live duck and danced around with its bloody carcass. Something similar happened with a chicken. But the final straw for the school came when Verdella began experimenting with sedatives and other drugs with a dog. 
which she eventually began to breed chow chows, but that's neither here nor there quite yet. Rodella left the school and began cooking full-time. Throughout his 20s and 30s, he came out openly as a homosexual and spent a lot of his time at nightclubs and with male prostitutes. Through his time writing to pen pals around the world, he began to collect antiques and artifacts from all over the place, and he started to sell them as a second source of income. Eventually, he opened a storefront at the Westport Flea Market, where he would meet Jerry Howell. He called the store Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, and in 1981, he quit working as a chef and pursued his sales of antiques and oddities full-time. He didn't always make enough to make ends meet, so he'd take on lodgers that would pay him to rent a room in his home. And while Jerry was never a paid lodger, this was again where he met Jerry Howell's father and eventually befriended young Jerry. For the last few years, Bob Berdella would allow young men, teens and early 20s, to stay at his home rent-free while they got back on their feet. In his eyes, he was counseling them, giving them money, helping them to get out of prostitution and drugs. And according to Berdella, He never had a physical relationship with any of these men that he was, quote, helping. However, on July 5th, 1984, Berdella kidnapped Jerry Howell, drugged him with animal tranquilizers, bound him to a bed, and gagged him. He then sodomized him over and over again. Though this was Berdella's first time doing this, he methodically took photographs with his Polaroid camera and took notes on Jerry's condition. These notes would later be found under a mattress on his bed. Jerry died of asphyxiation, but after he died, Berdella took him to his basement, hung him from his ankles, and proceeded to make several cuts into the body in order to drain his blood. He left him there overnight, draining into a large cooking pot. Rumors would eventually fly that he was uh, eating his victims. He, in fact, was not, or that he was using uh, the remains to create jewelry for his store, and that was also false. But I mean, He's such a monster, it really doesn't matter about those two things because I I think that the ship has already sailed as far as uh, judgment of him goes. So the next day, he dismembered Howell with with a boning knife and a chainsaw, bagged him up, and discarded him in the trash so that the next morning, just hours later, sanitation workers would take him to the dump. They were none the wiser, and he would never be found. Interestingly enough, Berdella claimed that he never wanted Howell to die. And you kind of have to believe that, because if you recall, he wanted a sex slave that he could keep for a very long time. The 28 hours that Howell was with Berdella simply would not have been enough for him at all. He was actually questioned, also, by law enforcement regarding the disappearance of Jerry, but he led police to believe that he had taken him to the dance and that Jerry had disappeared sometime after being dropped off there. On April 10, 1985, 23-year-old Robert Sheldon had asked to stay with Berdella as a paying lodger. He was Berdella's tenant. And on the 11th, Sheldon complained about pain and soreness that stemmed from the drugs that Berdella was actually giving him at the time. Berdella took Sheldon to the doctor following those complaints, but on the 12th of April, he came home to find Sheldon drunk out of his mind. Berdella says that that many of his victims became chosen victims when he realized that his, quote, help, wasn't actually helping these men to change their lives, and that they were still using drugs and prostituting themselves. This frustration with them was what allegedly caused him to hold them hostage, torture them, and ultimately kill them. This is what he used as his logic behind it, at least. 
Bradella held Sheldon captive for three days in his second-floor bedroom. He later told law enforcement that he didn't even find Sheldon attractive, but that he used him to take his frustrations from everyone else in the world out on him. When I say he tortured Sheldon, I mean he went so far as to pour Drano in Sheldon's eyes, cock his ears so that he couldn't hear, and he bound his wrists with piano strings. Who knows if Sheldon would have lasted longer, but on the 15th, he was suffocated with a bag over his head when a roofer came and uh, Bradella was basically worried that the roofer would hear Sheldon inside. So he suffocated him with a plastic bag, kept his body in the bathtub on the third floor. And then when the roofer left, he did the same thing with Sheldon as he did with his first victim. And he drained his body in the bathtub. This time, though, he kept Sheldon's head and buried it in the backyard. Bradella wasn't done yet, though. In between killings, he was appearing to be the quiet and aloof neighbor who kept to himself but seemed to counsel a lot of young men in need of a home and help. At least that's how the neighbor saw it from the outside looking in. No one suspected anything. But on a dark and stormy day, Bradella found Mark Wallace, someone who at one point had taken care of Bradella's lawn, hiding from the weather in his tool shed. Bradella, forever the opportunist, brought Wallace inside his home and offered him an injection of chlorpromazine to help him calm down. In just the 30 minutes from the time he gave him the drugs to the time they really kind of kicked in, Bradella decided to keep him as another potential sex slave. Wallace only lasted for one day before dying from a combination of drugs, the gag, and a lack of oxygen. His death was noted by Bradella in his notes as occurring on June 23rd at 7 p.m. His next victim, James Ferris, walked right into his grips. Yes, this whole time, it depends on who you, whose source you read, but some people say police knew that male prostitutes were disappearing here, while others say that they had no idea and Bradella had everybody fooled. But Bradella was just running this operation. His neighbors had no idea, and it didn't seem like anyone else was really catching on. Jerry Howell's dad had his suspicions, but he couldn't get police to listen either. So James Ferris walked right into Bradella's grips, and he'd actually asked him if he could stay with Bradella. He had lodged with him before, and he needed a place to crash. Bradella met him at a bar that night, and this was the first victim that he took with the intent to torture, not to just keep. But the others he ended up torturing and took them with the idea he'd keep them alive as his sex slave. Ferris, he knew he would torture and looked forward to it. As soon as he got Ferris back to his home, he fed him a meal with crushed up sedatives in it. He used a transformer to send electric currents through his shoulders and through his genitals. He used hypodermic needles to inject drugs into his system and to poke him underneath his fingernails just to torture him. For 27 hours, Bradella tortured Ferris endlessly and eventually was asphyxiated. Now, some of these victims... He was also injecting with antibiotics. He was giving them an IV of antibiotics to try to stop any infections from the injuries from starting so that he could keep them alive. He was getting these sedatives and these antibiotics from a veterinary supply store because he was breeding these chow chows. So James Ferris and Jerry Howell were the only two of Bradella's victims to be officially reported missing. Todd Stoops, a former boarder of Bradella's, 
brought Howell and Ferris up to law enforcement. He pointed out that both of these men had last been seen with Robert Berdella. But police told Stoops just to steer clear of Berdella. They, they didn't seem to be doing much more than warning him. Stoops failed to heed even the warning of police and stayed with Berdella for a third time in his life. In 1984, he had lived with Berdella twice, both he and his wife did, but now he was moving in by himself in 1986. So on June 17th of 86, Berdella invited, invited Stoops to his home for lunch and for sex for drug money. Stoops took him up on his invitation despite police's warnings. Berdella was incredibly attracted to Stoops and felt he had found his version of the collector's sex slave. He held him for two weeks this time slowly increasing the torturous activities in hopes of making him a, quote, good sex slave. Part of this included shooting electrical currents into his eyes in an effort to blind him and pouring Drano into his throat to silence his screams. Stoops only lasted two weeks. But he lasted for two weeks. On July 1st, 1986, he died from septic shock despite Berdella administering antibiotics in an attempt to keep him healthy. In June then of 1987, Larry Pearson, by the way, he's disposing of all of these people in the exact same way. He's draining them, dismembering them, leaving them out in the trash the day before the garbage goes out, and off they go. So in June of 87, Larry Pearson asked Berdella to bail him out of jail. What seemed like a great favor to Pearson was actually a calculated move by Berdella to invite Pearson to live with him. According to Berdella, Pearson made a joke about how he would rob gay men in Wichita, and so Berdella got him drunk, drugged him, and moved him to the basement. Pearson unfortunately endured much more torture for a much longer amount of time than any of Berdella's other victims. He was drugged and tortured for six weeks. The torture always includes shock therapy, hypodermic needles all over the body, including the genitals, and constant rape and sodomy. After only five days, Berdella told Pearson that as a reward for his good behavior, he was moving him up to the second floor bedroom. Six weeks into his torture, Pearson bit Berdella's penis so hard that it required hospital attention. Berdella bludgeoned Pearson over the head upon being bitten and suffocated him. He then left for the hospital where he was informed he would be held for a number of days. Before allowing himself to be admitted for surgery, he checked himself out of the hospital, went home to dispose of Pearson's body, like with everybody, cutting slits into the body and draining him before dismembering him with a boning knife and chainsaw and leaving him for sanitation workers the next day. Now he's doing this with an injury to his penis. The amount of pain that he had to be in and how much he just didn't care and he was so disconnected. It's, oh my God, it's mind boggling. This time though, like with Sheldon, he kept Pearson's head. In fact, he dug Sheldon's head up out from the backyard and essentially replaced it with Pearson's. What did he do with Sheldon's skull? Well, what else would you do when you collect weird antiques and human oddities? He put it on display in his house. While law enforcement may not have been privy to Berdella's ongoing torturous activities, rumors flew throughout the male prostitution community. Male visitors even reported seeing things that once belonged to missing prostitutes like Howell and Stoops in the home of Berdella. They warned each other to stay away. No one would talk to police, though, as they feared their own arrest and legal prosecution for sex work. 
So four years into his torturous murder spree, Christopher Bryson, a 22-year-old prostitute, stumbled into Bradella's clutches. On April 29, 1988, Bradella lured Bryson to his home with the promise of money for sex. Drug money. When Bryson got into Bradella's home, he got him upstairs to the second floor, telling him that his noisy and vicious dogs would be distracting if they stayed downstairs. He then knocked Bryson out with an iron bar, bound him to the bed, and gagged him, just as he had done with the other five victims. During the first five days of his captivity, Bryson was able to earn Bradella's trust, and in doing so, he was able to convince him to remove the bindings that kept his hands over his head and tie his hands more comfortably in front of his body. Throughout these five days, Bradella constantly showed Bryson Polaroid photos of all of his other victims, some of them dead and draining in the tub or basement. He used these as threats for good behavior and cooperation. And remember, he's looking for his perfect sex slave. He wants them to be with him for as long as possible. So after convincing Bradella to tie his hands in front of his body, Bradella had left one morning to go to work or to run errands. I'm not really sure where he went, to be honest. But while he was gone, Bryson quickly got to work using matches that had been left in the second floor bedroom to burn the restraints off of his wrists. After getting his hands freed, he opened the window and left from the second floor. Despite breaking his foot, he ran to the meter maid doing his rounds and begged him for help. The meter reader took him to a neighbor's where they called the police immediately. At this time, Bryson was wearing only a dog collar and a leash and was otherwise naked. Once police arrived, they seemed to not exactly believe Bryson at first, thinking that it could have been some sort of warped quarrel between lovers. At first, Bryson claimed to have been hitchhiking when he was picked up by a male in a brown Toyota Tercel. He told the police all about the bedroom on the second floor, the basement with the chains to tie men up by their ankles, the photographs of torture, the dead men, the condition of the home, and Bryson went on and on and on with details. Police immediately applied for a search warrant. Once officer, once one officer took Bryson to the hospital to get medical attention for his eyes, both swollen and burned chemically and, ele- and electrically. They noticed the bruises, the cuts, the burns on the rest of his body, and they took him for medical attention. Two officers stayed behind, though, at the property, waiting for a search warrant approval and surveying the property in case the owner, Bob, as he was known, returned. While they waited, Berdella did in fact come home and was apprehended immediately. Police had only 20 hours to arrest him on murder charges, but fearing they wouldn't be able to make those charges stick with nobody, they arrested him for the sexual assault of Christopher Bryson, seven counts of sodomy, first-degree assault, and felonious restraint. At that time, he refused to allow any law enforcement officers into his home to search it without a warrant. Not surprising. When the warrant was obtained, police entered Berdella's home to find dog feces absolutely everywhere. Luminal testing showed blood all over the basement, the third floor bathtub, the second floor bedroom, and all over two large trash cans. Everything, the clutter, the torture bedroom, the basement, the Polaroids, all exactly as Bryson described. They even found two human skulls on the property, in the home. Through dental records, they were, they were able to identify one as a skull of Robert Sheldon, and the other was indeed a high-quality fake. Because of these findings, though, they were able to dig up the backyard. In the yard, they found human bone fragments and another skull. 
Dental records this time showed that the skull in the backyard was Larry Pearson's. Law enforcement also found over 200 photographs of naked victims, all bound and being tortured, and in some of them, appeared to be dead while hanging by their ankles, while Berdella drained the blood from their lifeless bodies. Originally, bail was set at $500,000, but upon the finding of these photographs of the men who appeared to be dead in them, bail was revoked, and uh, in July of 1988, Berdella was charged with the murder of Larry Pearson, and in August... To avoid the death penalty, he pled guilty. He confessed to the murders of six young men, Robert Sheldon, Jerry Howell, Mark Wallace, James Ferris, Todd Stoops, and Larry Pearson. Because the prosecution only had his confession and no bodies, his taking the plea deal for life in prison with no possibility of parole with a guilty plea for the murder of Pearson was everything prosecutors could have hoped for. So on December 12, 1988, he pled guilty to six counts of murder and received two life sentences without any possibility of parole. Berdella was sent to a Missouri State Penitentiary, and at one point in the fall of 1992, he wrote to a minister claiming that they were withholding his heart medicine. On October 8, 1992, at 2 p.m., he complained to prison staff that his chest hurt. He was taken to the hospital where he died of a heart attack at 3.55 p.m. at 43 years old. If you watch some of the interviews of Berdella on, on YouTube, which I definitely recommend, but his eyes just, they really, they freak you out. They definitely get to you. But he talks about how he thinks that um, someone was basically paying off a prisoner or threatening a prisoner to poison him. He didn't believe that um, he was going to be alive for very long in prison, whether it was paranoia or he knew that someone was up to something. I don't know. I I would believe they withheld his heart medication because who would want someone like that to continue to live? And people take vigilante justice into their own hands all the time. Let's talk about his house, though. What happened to Bradella's house? While he was in prison, obviously before his death, he was able to set up a private auction to sell off most of the antiques he had accumulated and whatever junk he had in his house. He didn't have at one time have a number of pretty nice um, pieces of art, more expensive pieces of art, but the house itself, I mean, it wasn't in great shape. It was obviously covered in blood. It held a lot of horrific nightmares and energy, I imagine, but it was actually purchased by a bank robber at auction named Delbert Dunmire. He used to rob banks, and now he was a millionaire philanthropist. He had the house demolished in 1993. He didn't want anyone to ever live there, and he didn't want it to stand there as a reminder as to what happened there. So the house was very carefully dismantled. He was careful to preserve anything in case more evidence showed up or anything like that. But it was taken apart brick by brick, and then the land he actually split in half and gave it to the landowners on either side of the property. As for the final victim of Berdella's, Christopher Bryson, he seemingly, and rightfully so, disappeared off the face of the planet. He is untrackable. I hope that he was able to move on and regain some semblance of a, quote, normal life. I mean, I don't know if you can really ever come back from something like that, but he was at least given another chance and hopefully was able to, like I said, regain some semblance of a normal life. With that, Stop in midweek for something new and special this week for Murder and Mediumship. I'm really excited for it. And in the meantime, you guys, be kind to others, 
and use your turn signal. Love y'all.